0: Well, this morning we're looking at Romans chapter 7. Uh, We're going to be finishing out Romans chapter 7, and I mentioned last week that these two chapters, chapter 7 and chapter 8, are a major transition in the book of Romans. Paul has been spending several chapters now talking about the law and the place of the law, what is the relationship of the believer to the law, and in chapter 7 he's going to wrap up that discussion about the law, which has been several chapters for us, several months of looking at it. And then he'll make his transition into chapter 8, which is a really important chapter next week in the book of Romans, as Paul begins to move now from what the law had been to what this new life under Christ through the Spirit looks like for the believer. Um, Remember, over the last two weeks, Paul has been describing how we no longer live under the law using these analogies. Two weeks ago, slaves to the law no longer, slaves to sin no longer. And then last week, uh, using this image of marriage and remarriage, we're no longer in the marriage to the law, but in this new marriage to Christ. So in another one of these rhetorical questions that's so common for Paul, Paul asks, asks, if the law brought about sin, which is kind of what he's been saying in the last two weeks, the law helps us understand sin, then the rhetorical question goes, is the law then sinful? So that's Paul's introduction into this final argument about the law. We're going to be reading chapter 7, verse 7, through the end of the chapter. Romans 7, 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive, apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life promised to me proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring about death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And that through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold under sin. Uh, Many of you will be familiar with this next part of Romans, a difficult one to read, but I think I'll get through it. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Familiar words to some of you, what I want to do, I don't do, and what I do is not what I wanted to do. Is the law sin, is Paul's question, and immediately he tells us no. But without the law, we wouldn't have understood what sin was. Um, That sounds complicated sometimes when you're reading through chapter 7, but if you stop and think about it, it makes a lot of sense. If God had never spoken to man, if we had simply been created into the garden and allowed to be as God had separated himself and never had relationship or revelation to man, we would have never understood what it is God valued, why he had created us, the purpose by which he had put us in this place. We wouldn't have known how to worship or to serve God. Like so many of the other ancient religions of that day, our worship would have been turned into a kind of manipulation, a trial and error to figure out what works, what gets what I want from God. We would have been left to sort of craft our own way of worshiping. But God having chosen to explain who he was, to give us his word, the story of how he had worked with his people, having put down within that story laws and commandments to shape his people... God laid down a line in the middle of the story. And now knowing what God wanted, it revealed our tendency not to care, to do our own thing, to break that law, to cross that line. What the law had done is it exposed who God was, and it also exposed our unwillingness to worship him and our desperate attempts to live for ourselves and chart our own way. There is a whole garden before man, live in it, eat of every tree that you want, enjoy all of its fullness except for this one tree. And what does humanity do? It immediately finds its interest piqued by the one tree that can't be eaten, not the millions that could. And sure enough, man gets drug into sin, temptation. What's really important to see from chapter 7, and really what Paul's been doing throughout the book of Romans, is this point. If you take nothing else away, this is a conclusion. Paul does not see sin as simply a bad choice that you make on a bad day with a temptation. We're trying to do good things, but occasionally we just mess up. We make the wrong choice, we get overcome, and we make a sin. We all know, and Paul is pointing out in Romans 7, there is something much stronger at work in us, in this world, in our living. In verse 8, Paul characterizes it this way, but sin seizing an opportunity notice here sin is as as it is a character right a person within this story sin acts it seizes an opportunity through the commandment producing in me all kinds of covetousness far apart from the law sin lies dead sin for paul is a kind of force tell us that we can't have something and pretty universally what do we want the thing we were just told we can't have. We at least start wondering about it and suspicious why we've been told we can't have us. Tell us we can't do something, and we start thinking about how we could get away with doing it, how we could pull it off with no one knowing. The way Paul describes sin is as a kind of rebellion, a force, a spirit of defiance which wells up within us, seizes us, controls us, pushes us across that line. It's there in the garden, that rebellion, when the serpent uttered the words, did God really say? And with that subtle thought, what might God be keeping from us by this commandment? This suspicion, it poisons our whole way of thinking and acting and living, and it creates in us new desires— By being told we can't do something, we can't have something, something's bad for us, all of a sudden new desires are created within us for that very thing, that limit put on us to do what we've just been told we shouldn't. I wonder if Adam and Eve would have cared about that tree at all had God not specifically said, that's the one you shall not eat of. But the moment the command is given... All of a sudden, poisoned by sin, they find themselves suspicious and questioning and taking. See Paul's point. Your biggest problem is not a few bad decisions that you've made throughout your life. Your biggest problem is that there is a force working within you which pulls you and drags you away from the purpose to which God has created you. Sin seizes the opportunity. C.S. Lewis put it this way, in a way that I've always thought has been really helpful, um, particularly growing up, uh, but you hear it as an adult too. There's this sort of idea that if you're a good person, you don't really understand how hard, how difficult sin is, that it's only the people who have lived difficult, sinful lives that understand the real depth of human depravity. The goody-two-shoes, if you will, haven't experienced enough sin to know the way the world really works. But C.S. Lewis disagrees. He says this, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it actually is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. It's very easy to think that there are three kinds of people that live in the world. Maybe you can fit yourself into the spectrum. I know where we put, most of us put ourselves. There are those few and rare but truly holy people who seem to live so naturally by grace and mercy They always find themselves with scripture and words of blessing on their tongue, and we could never possibly imagine them stooping to the kind of sin we know in our own lives. On the other end of the spectrum, there are those equally few but horrific lives which seem to embody evil itself. We imagine how could they be human, living and acting and believing what they do. And then there is the large, messier middle of people who are mostly good with the occasional mistake here or there those all-too-human struggles that everyone else seems to be struggling with just the same, just a human. Most of it we deal with, our place on this spectrum, most of you in the middle of it, with a heavy layer of self-justification and a kind of internal neglect that assumes we're human, that's what humans do, and how humans are. So we spend very little time thinking about it. We know those sins that trip us up, But delving too deep into why those particular sins and why is it so controlling, we usually put out of our mind and move on the next day trying to do a little better. We justify it, we compare it to others, and we know very little about the sin that actually exists within us. Again, this is Lewis's point he makes elsewhere. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, the soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. I've always been struck by Lewis's point, cards are good enough if cards do the trick. Most of you are not felons or crooks or bigots, but greed will do, bitterness will do, Envy will do. Some gossip over the phone will do. Laziness did not deal with it will do. Sin will take every opportunity, seize every opportunity, the smaller, the better, the less noticed. N.T. Wright, who has been really helpful as I've worked through Romans, in his commentary, he says, When we too are faced with sin, whether on our own lives or in the wider world, we should not underestimate it. Evil is real and powerful. It is opposed to God, his world, his human creation, and not least those who are called to follow his son. We dare not trifle with it. It is deceitful and it is deadly. And this is the way Paul too describes it in Romans 7. Paul gives a lot of credit to the shrewdness of sin how it lays in wait, how it plots, how it takes advantage, how it seizes opportunities, small ones. Um, Let me give you one of my favorite illustrations of it. Uh, Some of you may have in some sort of a college literature class or high school or somewhere came across the book The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, Those names have kind of become uh, cultural references. We talk about somebody being a Jekyll and Hyde and imagining they're sort of two-faced or two-personalities. The premise for the book, though, is that Dr. Jekyll, who's a scientist who's constantly inventing, he conceives the human problem, this is how one writer put it, is uh, uh, the problem with the human condition is neither of ourselves lets the other one enjoy life fully enough. The evil self can't get over the guilt trip from the good self, and the good self can't get over the temptations from the evil self. So what Dr. Jekyll does is he creates a potion that allows him to split himself into these two people and to indulge both of them to their fullest. The evil side to its fullest, the good side to its fullest. He takes the potion and usually at night he comes alive to this alternate person who he calls Mr. Hyde and he begins to live free from morality, free from guilt, and maybe most importantly for him, free from the shame of what he commits when he's under this state. At first he finds it to be a blast. All the things that before he couldn't find himself willing to do because of the guilt, he now feels free. Emboldened, courageous, he describes it as a kind of freedom, guilt-free enjoyment. But Dr. Jekyll finds himself gradually becoming this Mr. Hyde persona without the potion, Um, That name, Hyde, it's spelled H-Y-D-E, but it's a play on word for Hyde, H-I-D-E. That what he's doing is he's living out the things he had previously hidden within himself. Eventually, he begins to lose control of it. Gradually, the sins become worse and worse. He finds himself slipping into this alternative persona without the potion, without control. He ends up at one point in the book committing a horrific murder, and he feels himself more and more becoming this person. He's horrified by what he sees, how far more powerful these impulses are within him than he had imagined, how without restraint he finds himself now doing things before he could have never imagined himself capable of, and he decides to put an end to it. Horrified, he destroys his pile of potion and he pledges himself to living the most virtuous, moral, good life that he can to atone and override all of this sin that's exposing itself within him. He dedicates himself year after year after year to good works, to charity, to doing good things. And what's maybe the turning point, the important point of the book, comes towards the end. Uh, The author writes this. It was a fine, clear January day, and the Regent's Park was full of winter chirpings and sweet with spring odors. I sat in the sun on a bench enjoying it all. I reflected. I was like my neighbor's. And then I smiled, comparing myself with other men, comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect. And at that very moment, of that vain, glorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea and the most dreadful shuddering. I looked down. I was once more Edward Hyde. It's a really interesting scene in the book. After years of doing good, he finds himself sitting on a beautiful day in a park bench enjoying life and reflecting back on just how good he's become, how much better he is than everybody else he knows, how he does good where others are cruel, how much he's made of himself. And in this thought of his own moral achievement, he looks down and realizes he slipped back into this persona, this sin character as before. The charity, the good works, the kindness... The public reputation had not been enough to beat back those impulses. He had been able to hide them, obscure them, veneer over them. But in this moment, once again, they surfaced out of his control. His efforts to reform himself, to become a good person, had actually done the opposite. It had reawakened in him pride and sin. I hope you see Paul's words, where the commandment had come, where he had lived it out, sin, lie, and wait, and took advantage of his momentary thought of goodness to awaken a new kind of sin within him. What that book is really about is our own inability to deal with this power of sin within us, that we can spend our whole lives doing good, acting good, giving, being charitable, projecting to the world the character and image of somebody holy and devout. But in that very moment of moral achievement, sin, the power of it, lying in wait, seizes even that goodness and distorts it to pride, competitiveness, and sin. Paul has been building to the final conclusion of really what's most of Romans to this point in verse 24. and I think it's probably what Jekyll experienced that day sitting on the park bench. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If living my own way only awakens more of this sin, and if doing my very best to live perfectly under the law only creates new forms of this sin, who will deliver me from it? One of the ways you can sum up Paul's statement about the law is possibly the worst thing that could happen to you is not that you would break the law and come to realize you don't keep it. Maybe the worst thing that could happen to you is you actually get pretty good at following the rules and the regulations and start to conceive of yourself as a pretty good person who's able to make pretty good choices in life, because then you find yourself even less prepared for the way that sin takes advantage of even that. This for Paul is the final conclusion of the law. Who will deliver me from this body of death, wretched man that I am? No matter how hard we try to save ourselves, the law only speeds up our coming to terms with this final conclusion, who will deliver me? One of the things that uh, if I could do a side note, I think so remarkable about reading these books, these biblical books, places like Romans, is Paul was writing this some 2,000 years ago. And yet, he's wrestling with the same experience that Robert Louis Stevens was in writing Jekyll and Hyde in 1886. And you can resonate so deeply with what Paul was saying 2,000 years ago with the way we experience life and ourselves these days, this world in 2020. Who will deliver us? Who will fix all of this brokenness around us? who can save humanity? When we go our own way, we make it worse. When we try to fix the problems ourselves, we only contribute more to it. Wretched that we are, who will deliver us from this brokenness, this force, this power of sin? Do you see for Paul how sin is so much more than a bad choice you made a few decades ago? Wretched people that we are, who will deliver us from this body of death? Law and obedience only reveal day after day the need that we are in. This is Paul's point at the conclusion of Romans chapter 7. But knowing Paul, he can't keep himself, can't stop himself from breaking in with that answer before he's going to fully get to it in the next chapter, chapter 8. For Paul, no more can he get the question out than can he say, can he put forth the answer, verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who will deliver us? Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ our Lord. What could not be done before by you, there is a power greater than that power, that influence of sin to work on you. Jesus has done what the law couldn't do. This is Paul's big point, where obedience and law and discipline can only time and time again reveal your brokenness and need. Jesus comes to do something altogether different, not to point his finger, not to come and make accusation, not to come and point out our failings. We've gotten that through the law plenty. Jesus comes that what the law had hoped for might be fulfilled that the brokenness of sin, the power of sin within us might be defeated. If you want to know how to deal with sin, what Paul thinks you should be doing about this force of sin within you, how you face your own brokenness, the brokenness of this world, the experience of all that has gone wrong, it really does come down to this one simple line, a line which Paul will spend many chapters, particularly chapter 8, unpacking and explaining fuller. But it's enough to get a feel for it here. Who will deliver us? Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Within that simple line is gratitude. Thanks be to God. There is worship. There is submission. Jesus Christ, my Lord. Within that one simple line is the hope that we all have. That whatever this sin thing is that we ourselves cannot overcome in Christ, it is defeated. It is broken. The goodness that God had created in that garden restored and put back together. And what are we left to do but to, like Paul, echo those words? Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ our Lord. Next week, as we come to chapter 8, we're going to spend a lot of time looking at what Paul means by that simple statement. Um, Romans can be a challenging book because so much of it, Paul takes his time to fully unpack. It's never a great sermon ending to say, go home today thinking about just how sinful you are. (laughs) Uh, Hold on to next week, chapter 8, where Paul gives us more. But it is important. Like I said at the beginning, it's important to recognize that your sin is a much deeper problem than poor choices. It's important to recognize that sin is not being just a choice but a power, a force, is lying at wait for you, willing to take advantage of both your good works and your evil works to lead you astray. It's important to remember that small sins can be just as effective in hedging you away from God as great sins. And it's important to be able to come to this final conclusion Paul does. Who will deliver me? Wretched man that I am. But the person who can say that, who can mean that, can recognize that position before God, a new door is opened into the fullness of what Jesus has done for you. So many of us fail to understand the power of what Christ has achieved because we still think about sin as some little thing, some poor choice that mostly we've cleaned our act up and fixed in our own lives. But for the man like Paul who can write, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Then that next line, Jesus Christ our Lord, becomes a life-altering, eternity-reshaping, reorienting statement, a grace, a mercy, and a gift. Let's close in prayer and we'll worship this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning knowing that to spend time thinking and talking about our own sinfulness is not easy. Everything in this world distracts us and shifts our attention constantly from it. God, today's sin is so quickly forgotten by tomorrow. We imagine that we can sin, say we're sorry, move on, try to do better, and the whole thing is fixed. God, you remind us through these words that this problem we face is so much deeper, so much greater. God, it is equally hard for us to acknowledge, but you've told us from the beginning, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. God, we recognize that we come into your kingdom by first recognizing our own inability to do it and our need before you. And so this morning, we take time to do it. To acknowledge that we are wretched. To acknowledge that even when we attempt good, we usually do wrong. To acknowledge that we don't know how to fix this world. We don't know how to fix what's wrong in our families and in our communities, in our country, in our own lives. We push advice on others that we ourselves don't know how to live true to need you we need your salvation god i need your spirit to rework this heart within me to love what you love and to hate what you hate to be holy as you are holy god that is not an effort a discipline that i'm capable of but we hear here in paul's writings his confidence and his faith and his trust in you breaks through even into this declaration of sin thank you God for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that you have come that you have taken on sin that you have suffered the consequences, that you have tasted and seen of this temptation that we experienced to the fullest, and that you did not shake or stumble or fall, but bore it with confidence and faith before God. And so we recognize our hope is in you. However we're to deal with this sin problem, you will be at the center of. Forgive us, God, for so many times where we've received you and then gotten back to our own projects, our own work. Forgive us of how much of this gospel we've yet to appropriate into our own hearts and our lives. And I pray that as we prepare, even next week, to come back and read so many of these words about life and your spirit and salvation in the chapter to come, that even now you would prepare our hearts for the goodness of that word move us again inspire us again for just what you have given the cost of what you have given that we might receive it as a gift as grace just as worthy so we worship you today like paul wrote we say thank you to you today Thank you for this salvation, this grace, this mercy, undeserved. Thank you for breaking the power of sin. Thank you for counting not our unrighteousness, but his righteousness for our sake. Your faithfulness where we have been unfaithful. Your holiness where we have been sin. We worship you and we thank you this morning. It's in Jesus' name.